cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbon! And cut. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut, let's try it again. Cut! And cut! 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 Check the game. Cut it! Cut! I did Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Annie. I'm Angie. And we're two siblings that love movies. First of all, we want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast. We premiered a few weeks ago uh, with Titanic, a double episode, and the uh, feedback has been awesome. So we really want to thank you guys for supporting. Uh, Again, we also do a YouTube broadcast, video podcast. So if you search Cut Movie Pod, you should be able to find it there as well as if you want to get a hold of us, we're on Instagram at at Cut Movie Pod, same thing on Twitter. And this week, this is episode three. So Angie and I had a Mandela effect where we thought the last podcast that we had recorded about COVID and being safe and wearing your mask. And for whatever reason, we didn't hit the record button. So this week, we want to make sure that we hope that everyone's safe out there, that you're wearing your mask, being social distant, and making sure that you and your loved ones are, are being safe. Having said that, let's go ahead and start off with episode three, where we'll be talking about Almost Famous, but also discussing is Stillwater the greatest fictional rock band of all time. We're actually going to do a battle of the bands. And by the end of this episode, we should have a winner. Maybe. Not sure. We'll start off with our first memories of the film. Um... Here's a weird thing. I usually have a really good database of where I saw certain movies. For the life of me, I cannot remember where I saw Almost Famous at all. I didn't. I know I didn't see it in the theater. I have no memory of seeing it in the theater. You know what? You mentioning that also, I have. I have no idea the first time I saw it either. I don't really have a distinct memory of seeing it, like how I did with Titanic, where I remember being in the theater and who I was with, and like the kind of time that we went to see it. For Almost Famous, I don't remember seeing it. I know I didn't see it in the theater. I feel like maybe I saw it here and it was on like VH1 or something. But I remember having the soundtrack on my iRiver. Wow. Back in the day. Dating yourself. High school. So I remember that, but I don't really remember seeing the movie for the first time or where I was. Maybe it was like a DVD copy you had, yeah. I'm guessing. There are two versions out there. So there's a DVD version. And actually, if you're watching this on YouTube, it's right behind Angie. That's the DVD copy that has the theatrical cut and the director's cut or the bootleg cut. Uh, The Blu-ray version only has the bootleg cut. I don't know why. They should have just given us both versions. But I'm pretty sure that's how I saw it. Or it was on cable like one day. The movie premiered in September 2000. And... What we want you guys to do, if you have never seen Almost Famous, um, we try to research if it's streaming and or if it's on demand or whatever. Uh, it's not streaming anywhere, so the only way to see it um, is on demand. Unless you want to buy a physical, physical copy. Um, it's on Blu-ray. Which you can. I recently got the Blu-ray copy for like $11. Yeah, it's not very expensive at all. Um, and it has a lot of great behind the scenes, a lot of production notes, and it's, it's a really great reference that we use to research the film. So we should start off as we do in the very beginning. This movie was written and directed by Cameron Crowe, and essentially Almost Famous is Cameron Crowe's life. 
you know, he grew up in San Diego, California. He skipped kindergarten and two grades in elementary school. His parents were very conservative and didn't allow rock and roll music in his house at all. So that's why, you know, when his sister sort of introduces him to that world, it kind of completely blows his mind a hundred percent. He also suffered from a kidney disease, which kept him indoors a lot of the time. And so he really couldn't socialize and he was kind of an outcast and people thought he was sort of weird. So to compensate for that, he began writing for the school newspaper. And so by the time he was 13, he was actually writing, writing for an underground publication, The San Diego Door. Trying to combine two things, writing and rock, he's like, well, maybe I should become a rock journalist. And so he started sending letters corresponding to other writers. And the one that he connected with is Lester Banks, who we'll talk a little bit more um, down the road on this podcast. But Lester Banks was really his kind of mentor as he was trying to navigate being a teenager and trying to be a rock writer and all that. Lester Banks wrote for a cream magazine and gave him his really his first assignment. Then Crow uh, went on a trip to Los Angeles and met Ben Fong Torres, who also plays a big part in the film, who was the editor of Rolling Stone. And that's where Crow began his uh, career as a freelance writer with Rolling Stone and then became an associate editor. Crow profiled, you know, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Neil Young, just to name a few. In 1979, Crow then being 22, began a segue from rock journalist to just a writer. And so he actually wrote the novel Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which subsequently was made into a movie. And it was a big hit. And so that got him notoriety, got people aware of him. And basically that's when he shifted his attention to films. And so he uh, did his dictatorial debut, Say Anything, in 1989. We all know the boombox, John Cusack, I Own Sky. And in 1992, he did Singles, another music-centric about the grunge scene in, in, uh, in Seattle. It was not a commercial success, but I get, it got a cult following and it was a great soundtrack. Like if you've ever listened to the soundtrack, it's, it's amazing. And actually a little tidbit, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was supposed to be on that soundtrack, but coinciding with the rise of Nirvana right at the same time, Nirvana got so massive that they couldn't afford the rights to to have Smells Like Teen Spirit. Fast forward to 1996, Crow does Jerry Maguire and it was a critical commercial success. Angie's not digging it. Why don't I, you like Jerry Maguire? I, I, I don't know. Maybe I need to see it again. I love Tom Cruise. I, know. I should love Jerry Maguire. Everybody knows I love Tom Cruise. I don't know. I mean, I don't love Jerry Maguire, but I think it's a good film and it's, it's sort of, that's where you could sort of see Cameron Crowe's staples where it's really great soundtrack, Definitely. very male centric, very emotional comedy. If that's, it could even coin that where he uses comedy to be very emotional at times instead of just being a comedic thing. After that DreamWorks hires Cameron Crowe and he makes almost famous, which was a 10 year journey for him to just get even off the ground. He had planned Almost Famous years ago and actually Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote Empire Strikes Back, co-wrote Force Awakens, was a director in his own right, did Body Heat. He encouraged Cameron Crowe because Cameron Crowe had all these artifacts from his time at Rolling Stone magazine and, and touring with all these bands. 
And Lawrence Kazan was, dude, you got to let that go. So you need to make a movie based off your life and just so you could kind of move on. And Cameron Crowe was like, you know what? You're right. I, I should put this, write this down and put it on film. One of my favorite stories researching Almost Famous was a story that Crowe essentially says was the genesis of, of Almost Famous. And it was an interview that he did with the Allman Brothers. One of the first interviews that he did at the time, uh, Dwayne Allman, who was a guitarist of the Allman Brothers, had recently passed away and who was Greg Allman's brother. And right after uh, Dwayne Allman died, Oakley, the, the bassist, also died in a similar motorcycle accident. So he had two members of the band die and Greg Allman never really did a lot of interviews. And so it was really tough for Crow to get it in the first place, much less have Greg open up. And Crow essentially carried a tape recorder with him, which you also see William in the film carry around. And so he went to, he got the interview with Greg Allman, went to his hotel room and recorded a few tapes of interview where he really opened up about the tragedy in his band, losing his brother and things that he would never have told any other journalist. And so leaving the interview, Crow was like, damn, that's like money. You know, I am, we're going to publish it. It's an exclusive. Um, not that he was going to be famous for it, but that it was just what he dreamed an interview to be. A few minutes later, one of the managers of the Allman Brothers calls uh, Crow and tells him, yeah, so Greg wants to uh, see you back in the room and this time bring your ID with you and the tapes. And right as Crow hangs up the phone, he gets this very uneasy feeling. He's like, here we go. Like, what, what's going on? So he goes back to Greg Allman's room and he's sitting in the exact same spot where the interview took place. And he notices that Greg has been like sweating and his hair is like slicked back with sweat. Greg is like, let me see your ID, dude. And he looks at the ID and he's like, how do I know you're, you're not a cop? How do you know you're not the FBI investigating the band? He's like, you're just too young, man. You're, you're too young to, to be doing this. And Crow's like, a few minutes ago, you were telling me about how your brother was sneaking you into bars when you were my age. So what, what's the deal? And he's like, you know what? My brother is sitting right over there and he points to an empty chair and he's laughing at you. And Crow like looks over and sees no one there. That's creepy. He basically says, leave me the tapes. Freaked out of his mind, Crow listens and leaves him all the tapes minus one. And the, the, the tape that Crow held onto was in Arizona, Greg Allman sang a cover of a Jackson Brown song. And it was so good that he wanted at, at least just to keep those tapes because he thought he would never see those tapes again. And so he leaves the tapes, is freaked out and leaves the hotel room and just completely devastated because he lost the story. His dream of that, what that article could have been was destroyed essentially. Neil Preston, who was a famous uh, rock and roll photographer and was working at Rolling Stone alongside with uh, Cameron Crowe, says... I'm going to get your tapes back because they were touring with, with the Allman Brothers as well. And so Neil Preston flies with Greg Allman, the Allman Brothers, to Hawaii and confronts Greg Allman and basically says, hey, man, uh, I need you to give me Cameron Crowe's tapes back. And Greg Allman responds, I don't even know why I have those tapes. Oh, my God. Obviously, Greg Allman going through a lot and was completely paranoid. So Neil Preston flies back from Hawaii, meets Cameron Crowe, and 
basically gives him back the tapes years later, maybe like 10 years ago. Uh, Neil Preston hits up Cameron Crowe and says, Hey, uh, Greg Allman's playing in Del Mar. Do you want to go see him? Not having seen him since the, the interview in 1973. So they go and they go backstage and Cameron Crowe says, Greg, I really want to thank you for almost famous. Cause that's, you're responsible for me making that movie. And so Greg Allman says, you're welcome. And that was like the last thing that he ever said to Greg Allman. It's bizarre. Yeah. It was a really bizarre story, but it just adds so much more context to. Yeah. Especially the, you were mentioning that Greg Allman asked him if he was a cop or like FBI agent, which happens in the movie after uh, Russell trips on acid. And all these like moments just within that one story, you could see them trickling into the film. Right. There was a moment that hit me where I realized that Cameron Crowe, I think maybe why, why men in general like Cameron Crowe films is because Cameron Crowe does guy flicks. And here's my evidence. One day I was home alone and I was just channel surfing. And here comes We Bought a Zoo, which Cameron Crowe wrote and directed. And I had already heard all the rumblings of like, this is a terrible movie. It's a terrible idea. What is he doing? Why is he making this into a film? And it also stars Matt Damon, who personally I'm not the biggest fan of. So it's already two negatives right there. And usually I don't watch movies that I've never seen before halfway through or started. Like usually if I haven't seen a movie, I'll not even begin to watch. And for whatever reason, I started watching this film and it was right in the middle of the movie and I cannot stop watching it. And I even like looked at the clock and I was like, it's 30, I'm 30 minutes in and I can't stop watching it. And that was the moment where I realized Cameron Crowe rise guy flicks. He's like Nancy Myers with the holiday. And what was the other one? Something's got to give you have Cameron Crowe with. But if you think about it, it's (laughs) true. Like look at say anything, look at Jerry Maguire. Look at Vanilla Sky, look at Almost Famous. There's something about the male characters and their stories. They're very heart-wrenching. Like in, in We Bought a Zoo, it's about, you know, Matt Damon loses his wife. And so he has to raise his family as a single dad. And basically that's why they buy a zoo is because they want to get out of the rut of not thinking about him losing his wife and the kids losing their mom in elizabeth town he loses his dad that's where i was going angie loves elizabeth i love town. elizabeth town why, why do you love elizabeth town i love elizabeth town because i just really like the way that cameron crowe captures the feeling of a really small town and kind of feeling like an outsider in a small town because you're from a big city or whatever but how a small town can kind of welcome you with open arms I really like that feeling that he captures as well as obviously the soundtrack is super, super good in that movie. But I don't know, just something about, I just really like the way that the story is in that movie, I guess more than like in Jerry Maguire. Cause in Jerry Maguire, it's like, it's more like a love story, which I guess in Elizabethtown, it's a love story too. But in Elizabethtown, it's more of him and his family accepting the fact that their dad is gone and him accepting the fact that he's kind of a failure. And he falls in love too. But that's kind of like on the back burner, at least for me. That's, the, I don't know. We'll talk about it later. Let's move on to casting. In researching the cast, it's actually kind of a mess. If we're talking pre-production and genesis of the movie and what the movie started as versus final product, 
it's a big mess cast wise. So for the cast, as we know them now, we have Billy Crudup playing Russell Hammond. So the lead guitarist of Stillwater. Kate Hudson plays Penny Lane. So the Band-Aid slash groupie, queen of the groupies. Patrick Fugit playing William Miller. Is it Fugit or Fugit? I've heard both. But when I was listening to the podcast, I got a lot of this information from a really good, well done podcast called Origins with James Andrew Miller. I only listened to the first episode because it was based just casting that episode. We had chosen, we didn't realize that it was the 20th anniversary of Almost Famous. We probably should have, but we didn't. They started doing all these podcasts and interviews and Rolling Stone. And so it was all just very coincidental because we chose this movie back in March. So yeah, I got a lot of the casting notes from that episode. Um, The podcast again is called Origins with James Andrew Miller. He has a six episode series on Almost Famous. And I think it all culminates with the whole cast with like the 20th anniversary. So we have Patrick Fugit as William Miller. Francis McDormand is playing his mom, Elaine. Jason Lee plays the lead singer of Stillwater, Jeff Beebe. Zoe Deschanel is William's older sister, Anita. Anita. Anna Paquin, Feruza Bach are the other groupies, Polexia and Sapphire. Those names, Polexia, what's Polexia's last name? Isn't it like Polexia Aphrodite or yeah, something, something, right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And then we have Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Lester Bangs. And then the other bandmates, we have Mark Kozalek playing Larry Fellows, who was in um, Sun Kill Moon and Red House Painters. And he also plays in Phoebe Bridger's band. Oh, really? Which I just found out. And then Silent Ed Valancourt, which is a drummer, is played by John Fedovich, who was in The Spasmatics and Metal Gods. And they're the only two actually rock people in Yeah, who Stillwater. actually, well, Jason Lee did play the guitar, but... And also skateboarded. Billy Crudup played the piano. Well, it's interesting too, because when they go, I think it's in Arizona, he goes to the lobby and he starts playing the piano. Yeah, when they land in Tempe. So the casting director for Almost Famous was Gail Levin. So she was in charge of kind of hunting everyone down and, you know, picking up the pieces once half of the cast, the first half of the cast ditched the movie because they did. When they started casting, we're doing interviews for casting and kind of auditions. No one in the cast really knew what is a, what it was about, what the movie was. It was just the untitled Cameron Crowe project, which is why a lot of them wanted to be in it. Who do you think Cameron Crowe wanted to play? Or maybe you know this because you were researching William's mom. I have no idea. Because it wasn't Frances McDormand. It was Meryl Streep. Really? Yeah. That's that's a high bar. That's like putting Stairway to Heaven. It's going to be in my movie, you know? That's like saying, this is the first thing I want in my movie. Meryl Streep and Stairway, and to, Stairway heaven. to Heaven. Exactly. When Frances McDormand came in after Meryl Streep just didn't happen... She had done a play with Billy Crudup. She had done Oedipus and she had played his mom. So they kind of had that relationship already. And Cameron Crowe was mentioning that in a lot of the scenes they had together, you could still kind of see that like mother son thing. And at one point he was like, there was some kind of sexual attention in that line you just did. And Francis was like, well, I was in Oedipus and he was my son in the (laughs) play. So like, what do you expect? So that was kind of a fun thing that I found out. She was also saying that people to this day still yell, don't do drugs at her or don't take drugs. Nice. She'll just like get people yelling that to her on the street. You had mentioned earlier, Brad Pitt was in the original cast. The original cast was Brad Pitt as Russell, which is Cameron Crowe's like number one. Like Cameron Crowe really, really, really wanted Brad Pitt 
to be Russell, which makes me feel kind of bad for Billy Crudup when he talks about it because he's just like all about Brad Pitt or was all about Brad Pitt. So Brad Pitt was playing Russell and they had Sarah Polly playing Penny because she looked a lot like the real Penny Lane. And it was just kind of like they had cast her first. And so what happened with Sarah Polly is she went to Sundance with some friends to the festival and they kind of just convinced her and told her that if she did this big movie with Cameron Crowe, she could just say goodbye to doing all these indie movies that she really wanted to do. So she came back and was just like, you know what? No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. And she just like dropped out. Really? And then with Brad Pitt, what happened, which was super weird too, is that Brad Pitt had been in the role for like four months. He read with Sarah Polly. He read with Natalie Portman, who also kind of came in to do Penny. And he was like working on the character, talking about playing guitar. And Cameron Crowe was like really into it. He even read with Patrick Fugit. And then he just kind of decided not to. Bailed? He just bailed. Cameron Crowe kind of mentions that it might have been a money thing at some point that maybe Brad's people wanted more money than the production was willing to give him. Almost when his budget at 60 mil. Yeah, which isn't. Which is not is a lot. not a lot. Even in 2000. Yeah. And Brad Pitt was coming off Fight Club. So he was already Brad Pitt. Cameron had written Russell with Brad Pitt in his mind to play him. Wow. Like as he was writing, he was so like, was this is going to be Brad Pitt. This is going to be Brad Pitt. And it's funny because in the podcast, when they kind of switch gears to Billy Crudup, they're like, so was Billy Crudup like the top of the plan B list or like, how did that happen? And he's like, oh yeah, totally. That's that he was on the plan B list, but he was like at the top also with Russell Crowe. I had heard about that. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. When we were talking about reasons about Brad Pitt leaving, it was also mentioned that Brad was uncomfortable with the age difference between Russell and Penny. It was mentioned that 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 could have been one of the reasons too. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Which we'll talk about more once we get to that scene. Right. And so other names, actually, I think Penny Lane was one of the ones that had a bunch of other people attached to it or just like many people auditioned. So we have Kate Campbell. Jenna Elfman from Darman Gregg, Bridget Moynihan, Maggie Gyllenhaal, nice. Rose McGowan, and Rebecca Romaine. Kate Hudson had originally got the role of Anita. So she was supposed to play William's older sister. I had read that Kate Hudson had auditioned for a different role, but it didn't specify which role. But when Cameron Crowe saw Kate Hudson's energy, he immediately was like, you're auditioning for the wrong part. Once she found out that Sarah Polly was out, she wanted to read for Penny and Cameron Crowe was like, eh, not like kind of not about it. So it was really Gail Levin, the casting director that was like, you know what? You should just give her a shot and just have a read with Patrick and see how it goes. And I guess when they read, she was really good. And that's kind of what happened. And when we go back to the role of Anita, which is now vacant, Zoe Deschanel had read for Cameron Crowe and he really liked her, but he like didn't have a role for her. And when they were talking about it, they were like, oh, she showed up with like a flower in her hair and like this really long coat. And I was just like, of course she did. And so, yeah, I guess, which I can't really picture anyone else playing Anita at this point. Yeah. Because it's like such a Zoe Deschanel role when you think about it. For Jeff Beebe, so Jason Lee's role, I think it was Cameron Crowe had just liked him in Chasing Amy. And like you mentioned earlier, Jason Lee was first and foremost a skateboarder. Like that's what he was which I didn't know for a while. Like when I was watching Dogma and like all those Kevin Smith you movies, thought he was just I thought he was just an, an actor. actor. Yeah. And then I saw his skating videos and I was like, 
I sort of figured that that's where Cameron Crowe got the idea to cast recently just from Kevin Smith films. And then when we get to Lester Bangs, we get to Philip Seymour Hoffman when playing Lester. Cameron Crowe, when he talks about it, he talks about how like even after he had seen Philip Seymour Hoffman, he still kind of looked around because he felt it was too easy. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, this, clearly he's Lester Bangs, so I have to keep looking because this is too easy. But I guess when Philip Seymour Hoffman read for him, he didn't do like a formal reading. He kind of came in and went on a rant about an American Express yes. billboard that he had seen that was it, Scorsese was on it. And he just kind of went on and on about this American Express thing and then left. And then Cameron talked to Gail Evan, the casting director, and was like, "What? Well, he didn't even read anything. And she was like, yeah, he just did. Did you not see like what he just did? And so that was his kind of read was just kind of this big improv, very Philip Seymour Hoffman thing. And that's how he got the role. Well, I think the conversation was that he had met up with Cameron Crowe and he basically talked about how Scorsese being one of his heroes to see him selling out and being like, oh, in an American Express card and and the idea that how you idolize your heroes, but they'll disappoint you. And how do you deal with that? You know, it's sort of like, you know, how we have favorite movies and famous actors and directors. And sometimes they do some stupid things that make you often question why am I even their fan? I shouldn't watch their movies and stuff like that. And so that's who Lester Bangs was in real life. And when we go to uh, Dennis Hope, which comes in to be Stillwater's manager, which is played by Jimmy Fallon, Cameron Crowe had seen Jimmy Fallon on SNL and just like loved him, I guess. And that's how he cast him. And when they were interviewing Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Fallon just like still kind of can't believe that Cameron Crowe wanted him. When did he make Taxi? When did 2001, maybe it was after this for sure. And he talks about, and he's like, dude, when I was cast for this movie, I was like laughing my way through skits on SNL. Like I didn't know how to do anything. And so even he's just like, you know what? I just don't even know why I was in this, but I'm in this and it's great, which I think Jimmy Fallon's really good in the movie. Yeah. For like what he does. He's like hilarious. Yeah. Like he's great. Going back to Penny Lane that Cameron Crowe ended up going with Kate Hudson is that pretty much she said no to a bunch of other film projects while they were waiting for almost famous to take off. And this was before she was even cast as Penny Lane. She was still in the role as Anita. She was denying all these other roles that were probably lead leading lady roles. And because of that, he's like, you know what? She was Penny Lane because she was loyal and she didn't go anywhere while we were trying to get this movie off the ground. Well, cause also this was her big breakthrough. Like yeah. as far as roles, I can't think of a movie before almost famous that brought her this much attention and had her in one of the leads. Do you know, uh, alternate movie titles, any of them other than untitled ones off the, the drafts of the screenplay, which are, they're probably all the ones that I found. So the one, what was it? Um, fedora. That was supposed to be David Bowie's. Right. And then the journalist. So we have, there were a bunch actually, but I just kind of picked nine. So we have Tangerine, My Back Pages, Superstar, Rewind Forward, Rewind to the End, Rock School, Coda, which I kind of like Coda. Yeah. 1800 Words, Words in Music, and The Uncool. Rock School, that brings up something for later, just to listen out for. Let's not forget about Patrick Fugit, who was probably the hardest role to cast, according to Cameron Crowe. 
because he had to be a certain age. He had to have a certain sensibility of a young kid starstruck with the surroundings of being a rock journalist, being around celebrities and all of that. And so they didn't want to cast a Hollywood kid actor that would hit all his marks and would be perfect. It needed to be a little bit more innocent, a little bit more natural. And so they did a casting call, worldwide casting call of people to send in tapes. The casting director, Gail Evan, found Patrick's tape and basically said, I think he's the kid that that we've been looking for. And so they flew out Patrick to LA who had never been to LA. So right as he meets Cameron Crowe, Patrick had already seen Say Anything. So he's looking up to Cameron Crowe. He's in Los Angeles. And so naturally when he did his audition with uh, Kate Hudson, he had that natural starstruck feel that you see in his eyes throughout the movie. And Cameron Crowe's like, I think we found the kid. And it's one of those cases where you hear about movies that, oh, it came out at the last minute. It was one of those same ideas where they couldn't find him. They find an audition tape at, you know, the last hour. And they're like, I think we, we found him. It always amazes me how they find these kid actors like Henry Thomas from E.T. who are from nowhere. They're, they, you know, they come in and do the audition and they just nail it. And it's, it, it's a transformational role that they, they're known for years and years. I would imagine that it would be really difficult to cast yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, because like if you... I know they ask people sometimes, like, if someone were to make a movie about you, who would you cast as yourself? Like, I have no idea. Especially if I was in charge of the movie, I'd be like, well, I don't know. So I feel like that was also why it was so difficult. And it's a make or break part, because if you don't believe in right. the kid or if it's not genuine, it looks fake. It looks like it's being overacted yeah. at times. So it was, it was just, again, they were born to play play those roles having pre-production out of the way let's start with the movie it begins with the title sequence which is being handwritten on a yellow notepad that's cameron crowe writing all the title sequences what's interesting to me about the opening title sequence is that it's shot with a digital video camera which is not of the era that the film takes place so i thought that was a little interesting I don't know if a lot of people even noticed yeah, that. Yeah, honestly, I didn't even notice that. Although in the behind the scenes, you do notice that a lot of the behind the scenes footage was shot with that camera. It makes me a little bit nostalgic because that's how I started shooting, you know, short films in high school and, yeah. and making videos using modern technology of the time for a movie that takes place in, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. That's true. And I did notice in a lot of the beginning, so when you get flashes of him writing the cast names on the notepad and then you get flashes of backstage passes and programs. And those are actual real, that's all of Cameron Crowe's stuff. So when I was listening to the commentary, the commentary is like four different people, but it's mostly Cameron Crowe and his mom, which is really interesting because you get all of this. Francis McDormand is based on his mom and you get all of her like little tidbits of, did Francis get this right? Did she not get this right? What is this? What is this? What is this? He also mentions that the beginning is an homage to To Kill a Mockingbird. Like Which the beginning. They're, as they're walking out of the movie theater in San Diego, that's the that's what they're talking about. They, they had just watched 
to kill a mockingbird and talking about Atticus Finch and what a great man he is. And that's something to inspire to you for, for William to, to be. What's interesting about that scene is I didn't look this up, but there's a marquee in the background. What I could tell it says something about a film about Truffaut and then it says stolen kisses. And then it says, don't look BA, but I, I don't know. Those. Don't look back. Well, yeah, Maybe. it could be don't look back, but I, of movies that I know. I, yeah, I didn't know any I, of them, I, I but know. I think they mentioned in the commentary that those are the movies that were actually playing. I forgot the name of the theater, but so they're walking down and they're talking about To Kill a Mockingbird and Elaine says, well, what about Boo Radley? I think Boo Radley is one of the most interesting characters in the book, which I also think I feel like I should reread it because I haven't reread it in a Same. long time. And the part that kills me in this too is when she walks up to the guy painting Mary Xmas and she's like, no, no, I'm a teacher. That's not, that's not grammatically correct. And that was actually the way Cameron Crowe's mom was, is it was either happy holidays or Merry Christmas, but Xmas wasn't like, that's not even a word to her. Inside the Miller home, there's a frame with writing on it. Do you know what that is? It's a prayer. Yes. The, um, serenity prayer right it's one of the most well-known prayers of our time it is a common name of a prayer originally written by theologian reinhold neighbor in the late 1930s to uh 1940s it reads god grant us the serenity to accept things we cannot change the courage to change the things we can and the wisdom to know the difference what i find interesting about it is that knowing william's mom i wouldn't see her as a religious person not necessarily. And so when I saw that and I really kind of focused on what it was, it sort of took me back just a little bit. I guess that makes sense. But when you're looking at the prayer for what it is, like as words, I think that's an appropriate prayer for like a teacher to have in their house or like someone like Elaine, because she's like, she's one of those weird moms where like from the outside, you're like, oh man, she seems so cool. She's like letting you do this stuff. But then like, if you're her kid, you're just like, oh my God, I guess maybe I relate more to Anita in this case between the two siblings. Cause that would totally be me probably. But she just seems so cool from the outside. And I think she just has this really logical way of thinking. And that's probably because she's a teacher. She is the way that she is, but it like makes sense to her. Like she can work it out to where it makes sense. And a lot of it does make sense when you think yeah. about it. And it fast forwarding, there's that scene where he's talking to Russell, where she's talking to Russell. It says, may the forces guide you on yeah. your path. And she says, Gus said that. Yeah. And yeah. so there's this kind of like back and forth of logical thinking and spirituality. And, and so I feel like she's, she kind of goes back and forth. Yeah. And a lot of what she does in terms of raising her kids makes sense, but a lot of it is kind of way over the top. But also William's only 15. So it's like, and I, I, I feel like we can kind of relate to that because that's kind of like how our mom is. Yeah. Like a lot. Yeah. A lot of it is like, we're very familiar with it. Go feck yourself. Before that, I noticed, because I'd always wondered what Elaine was cooking. She's cooking soy cutlets. Really? Like, so I, I always thought it was like hash browns because <laughs> it looks like hash browns, but it's soy, I'm guessing pork chops. Because when Anita gets home, she's like, are you hungry? I just made soy cutlets. And I was like, ooh. I completely missed that part. Yeah. I barely noticed it. But it would be something that she would make. Interior of the car, when William finds out that he's a lot younger than he realizes, that's actually 
Cameron Crowe. He skipped kindergarten and first grade, realizing that you haven't even hit puberty, thinking that you were like about to and that you won't hit puberty for for like like another another two years. And when I was listening to the commentary, Cameron Crowe's mom still says she says something to where it's like she made him skip kindergarten and just put him in first grade because she taught him kindergarten. But Cameron Crowe's mom says that when he was going to like fifth or sixth grade, or maybe it was like second and third or something, the class he got to said like sixth grade and he thought it was fifth grade and he just like sat in the class anyway. And once he told his mom, his mom was like, well, do you like it? Like, are you learning? And he was like, yeah. And so like that it was partly Cameron Crowe's fault because he like walked into the wrong class. But I don't believe her. <laughs> yes. Blame her son. <laughs> yeah. For, her like 10 year old son. Yeah. For confusing the shit out of him <laughs> to see how old he is. And like, oh, yeah, it's totally his fault. She leaves to become a stewardess. This is the first significant song track song. Simon and Garfunkel's America. It's like one of the best ones. Yeah. And actually, this scene is based on a picture that Cameron Crowe has of his sister in rollers, ready to leave. And the rollers were actually frozen orange juice cans Really, that she's wearing. And you can actually see it because they mentioned it in the commentary. And I always thought they were just regular rollers. But you can see like the little ridges of like the can. And I guess that was like what they did at the time. When Anita tells William to look under the bed and that it'll set him free. Some of the albums that she leaves him behind are Beach Boys Pet Sounds, Rolling Stones, Get Your Yaya's, Led Zeppelin 2. Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, The Who's, Tommy. I mean, that's like your greatest hits of dad rock right there. And I think that they mentioned that the Joni Mitchell album, I think it's called Blue, that that wasn't even out at the time. Oh, really? So that was like a thing that Cameron Crowe put in there. He was like, I know it wasn't out at the time, but it's just a really good album. So I decided to put it in there. The bag that he pulls out from under the bed is the exact same bag that his sister left him. Anytime I hear about something in this movie being the same thing that happened that day, I think of our mom too, because Cameron Crowe's mom kept everything. And so a lot of the stuff in the movie is genuine. Like that bag is real. All the backstage passes are real. We're going to get to some stuff later on that was authentic too. And so, yeah, that bag is the real bag. I also feel that that trickled down to Cameron Crowe and that he kept all the stuff because as I'm about to get to, we're about to talk about Lester Banks. He kept a lot of the correspondence between him and, and him and Lester. Introducing Lester Banks. So we're going to do a little deep dive on him because to me, he's probably my favorite character in the movie, even though it's very brief, but he leaves such a big impact on William and left such a big impact on, on Cameron Crowe that I think without him, the movie doesn't get made. He grew up in San Diego as well. One of the first reviews that he ever did was for Black Sabbath in 1970. And this is what Lester Banks had to say about Black Sabbath's first album. Cream cliches that sound like the musicians learned them out of a book grinding on and on with dog persistence. Vocals are sparse, most of the album being filled with plotting bass lines over which the lead guitar dribbles wooden claptonisms from the master's tiredest cream days. They even have uh, discordant jams from the bass guitar reeling like velocitized speed freaks all over each other's musical perimeters. You're never quite finding sync, just like Cream, but worse. So basically he's saying that Black Sabbath is just a complete ripoff of Cream. Definitely wordy, definitely was a writer in every respect. 
He eventually got fired from Rolling Stone magazine for, quote, disrespecting musicians after a, part- a particularly harsh review of the group the Can Heat. Bangs then freelanced for Cream magazine in 1970 and in a year became its editor. They were the first to coin the term punk rock and created the framework for the later punk and new wave movements that emerged in New York, London, and elsewhere. Cream magazine were the first to significantly cover Lou Reed, David Bowie, Roxy Music, Captain Beefheart, Blondie, Brian Eno, and the New York Dolls. And eventually, Bangs died of an accidental overdose, April 1982, which is pretty, pretty Isn't sad. Isn't that the way? Yeah. We enter that scene played by, again, another tragic story, the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, my favorite part is like when he says, Iggy Pop. And then he's just like, puts and it he's on. like, it's a little too early for Iggy Pop. And then Jim Morrison, he's a drunken buffoon. Yeah. I like that whole spiel he goes into, especially when he talks about the letter. I've totally blanked on the band's name and how Jethro Tull was just trying to do in two minutes and whatever seconds with the letter, they did what Jethro Tull couldn't do in like six minutes or whatever, yeah. which was the letter is a really good song. Every scene that Lester bangs, every line that he says, it could be in the top, 100 greatest lines in movies. It's like like he's the conscience of the film, I think. Because William always calls him when he's having these sort of crises of like whether or not he should be a good journalist or be a friend to these guys. Or when he's struggling with that, he always calls Lester Banks and he kind of just like gives him, gives, gives it to him straight up and like kind of puts him in his place and says, look, this is what you need to do. This is what you're not doing. You need to fix it. Yeah, he filters out all the bullshit and then gets straight to the point of of what he needs to do. And sort of what William is torn to, because he's obviously the big, he's a fan before a journalist. And I think Lester Bangs was his like school of like, no, you got to be honest and unmerciful, which is again, great line to give, you know, a 16 year old kid about just life. I would have a hard time doing that now as a 30 year old. If I was touring with my favorite band, I would have a super hard time separating myself, the fan versus myself, the journalist. So I can only imagine if I was 15, it would be like twice as bad. You will meet them all again on a long journey to the middle. That's another brilliant line. And so the idea is that when William meets Lester, rock and roll is basically dead. He tells him, your writing is damn good. It's a shame you missed out on rock and roll. It's over. Got here in time for the death rattle. In real life, that's how Bangs was, where he, there's tons of videos and interviews where he talks about how in the 70s, they were waiting for the next savior. He talks about in the 40s, you had Sinatra. In the 50s, you had Elvis. In the 60s, you had the Beatles. In the 70s, he even says, we're still waiting for who is it going to be? So to him in the 70s, rock bands were just regurgitating what had already been done but with bigger costumes and then it led to hair metal and you know all that genre of of rock and so to him most of the bands that came out in the 70s he's just like i've seen it i've heard it we need we need something new something new and fresh the record or the radio station scene was the first scene that they shot with philip seymour hoffman and in between takes he would have headphones where he would listen to interviews with Lester Bangs. And actually Philip Seymour Hoffman was sick. He only had four days to shoot all his uh, Lester Bangs scenes. And so he would not talk to the rest of the crew. 
when you're talking about how you put the headphones to listen to Lester Bangs. He basically, I think it was just to save his energy and to not expend it talking to the cast and crew. Not that he didn't want to like partake in conversation, but I think it was because he was so sick that he was just like, I need to focus on my gig and just do it. And then, and I did also hear that that scene, once they leave the radio station and they're kind of walking up this like little hill, that that was the same exact street where they walked and the diner where they're having the conversation where he's basically telling them not to be friends and to be honest and unmerciful. That's down the street where the original diner was. Then the new diner I think is now like a business that that isn't a restaurant. Also something weird that I noticed on my rewatch. I don't know if it's just that my TV is very large or that the Blu-ray version is very wide, but in the scene where Lester and William are talking on the corner of that street, there's a VW bug that's parked next to them. And you can see what I'm pretty sure is a sound guy. And he's just like crouching next to the bug. Really? He has the headset on. And I was like, what is that? And it's like a guy and he's crouching next to the VW bug, like almost all the way down. And you could just see like his head and you can see that he's wearing like a headpiece, like a headset with like a mouthpiece. I don't I'm, see why Elsie would I'm be there. I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah. You guys, when you watch it, look for that scene. Yeah. And then comment. And, and then comment and let Nancy's us know right. if I'm crazy yeah. or if you should be there. So obviously Cameron Crowe idolized Lester Bangs and wanted to get the character right. And he knew that if somehow he didn't get it right, that Lester Bangs' ghost would somehow manifest itself <laughs> and tell him, dude, you're getting it wrong. And so in the diner scene, the first time they ran it, Philip Seymour Hoffman all of a sudden says, who the hell keeps saying cut? And the crew kind of looks around and is like, what are you talking about? No one's saying anything. And at that moment, Cameron Crowe's like, that's Lester. He's telling, he's telling me that like, he's, we're not getting it right. And they did two more takes and they finally got it right. And they were able to, to move on. Ghosts, The man. spirits were everywhere. Going to the arena. This is Black Sabbath's paranoid. Don't take drugs. Don't take drugs. That's another, our mom thing. Also family whistle. We never had a family whistle, but. On the ramp, intro to Penny Lane and the Band-Aids. So when we get to the top of this ramp with William, after he unsuccessfully tries to get into interview Black Sabbath, we are introduced to the iconic Penny Lane. And I say iconic because she truly is iconic in this movie. from Everything from her clothes to just her whole entire character. So we meet her at the top of the ramp. And by the way, since we're talking about Penny Lane, I don't know if you guys watching the video have seen us taking swigs of this, but we're drinking Heineken's in honor of Penny Penny Lane. And if you haven't seen Almost well, Famous. Would you really call it an honor? Well, you know, as a cruel joke to Penny Being Lane. shafted. You'll find out later why we're drinking Heineken's. And so we meet Penny Lane at the top of the ramp with the other girls. We're first introduced to the other Band-Aids slash groupies. First, we meet Estrella Star, which I think is kind of a dumb name because it's the same word twice. From then on, William talks about how he's not, you know, a groupie. And then Penny Lane just kind of comes in out of the shadows in this really cool shot that I like. It's a really cool reveal. It's almost like there's like a weird noise in the background, like this weird swelling of music. Maybe it's just something I hear whenever it happens. But it's a really cool reveal because she kind of comes out of this like smoky darkness. So she comes in in all her glory and explains that they're not groupies. They're band-aids. They're there for the music. They're there to inspire the music. They don't sleep 
with the rock stars. They just inspire them. And so when we're talking about Penny Lane, if you've seen the movie before, and since we've been talking about it being kind of mostly a true story based on Cameron Crowe, you have to imagine that Penny Lane came from somewhere. And so the inspiration was actually based on several women that Cameron Crowe met in his travels with the Almond Brothers and with Led Zeppelin and with the Eagles. And so those three ladies are Bibi Buell, who is Liv Tyler's mom, Pamela DeBar and Penny Lane Trumbull. Penny Lane Trumbull is where the name comes from, but except she spells it with an IE instead of a Y. That's probably the biggest name that I found doing research. Yeah. And so we have these three women and um, they all kind of lent part of themselves to the character of Penny Lane as we know her in Almost Famous. Obviously, the name came from Penny Lane Trumbull and kind of the looks, I would say, because she has like the golden curls and she was blonde, whereas B.B. Buell was more of like a dirty blonde. And Penny Lane, like the real Penny Lane, actually has her own website, but it hasn't been updated since like 2014. And she has like a thank you on the very bottom. Like the last blog she wrote, I think was about Almost Famous and like the real story of Penny Lane. And on the very bottom, she has a thank you to Cameron Crowe, basically saying, thank you for putting me on the screen. When we move on to B.B. Buell, her and Cameron Crowe were actually really close when they were touring together. They would hang out at hotels together. They would go to parties together. So much so that the character of Jeff B.B., the lead singer, is named after B.B. Buell. That's why his last name is B.B. She feels differently about one of the other women that I'm going to talk about when it comes to Penny Lane. She's all about it. She loves how, you know, the Band-Aid was portrayed in Almost Famous. She loves the line that Penny Lane says about how they're not groupies, they're Band-Aids, they're here for the music. And she loves the Tiny Dancer part that we'll talk about later, too. Whereas when we get to Pamela DeBar, which was the other lady I was talking about that is partly the inspiration for Penny Lane, she pretty much hates everything about Penny Lane. And she's been described as the queen of the groupies. So she was like one of the most popular ones in the 70s that were out there. And there was actually an article that we read recently while we were working on this podcast that came out. I think it was a Vulture article. Yeah, it was Vulture. Where she pretty much mentions everything that she hates about Penny Lane. And that includes the line that PB Buell loved where she says, we're not groupies, we're band-aids. Yeah, Pamela she DeBar calls said, it something that we can't say. Well, we can, but I'm not going to. But she calls it a crappy line, basically, that she hates it. She says she doesn't hate the movie because she thinks that the way they do portray groupies is in a very mostly positive light. But she does hate the tiny dancer part on the bus. She says that that would never happen, that they wouldn't do that. Even though when we go back to B.B. Buell, she mentions that the tiny dancer scene did happen but they were with a Marshall Tucker band. Oh, really? Yeah. So she said it really happened and it was to Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love. Whoa. So take that, Pamela DeBar. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So there's just like, especially between, you know, B.B. Buell and Pamela DeBar, it's just like complete there's opposite. There's a lot of contradictions. From two women who were living similar lives at the time. They both kind of experienced a lot of the same things. So it's kind of like, I don't know. When we go back to Pamela DeBar not liking it, another big gripe that she had with the movie is another scene that I can't talk about yet. We'll talk about it when we get to it pretty much. But it is kind of one of the major, major scenes in the movie. And so when we get to it, I'll kind of explain why she didn't like it. But she also mentions that she thinks Penny Lane is a ripoff 
of her. I guess when Cameron made it, she kind of went up to him and was like, dude, like you didn't like ask me. I had this story that I'm writing that I wanted to sell to become a movie. And now I can't because everyone thinks of Penny Lane when they think of groupies now. And it's just like always going to be this way. And I guess Cameron Crowe brushed her off at first, but then eventually got in contact and was like, you know what? I'm really sorry. Like, what can I do to make it up to you? And she's like, well, I should have been a consultant on your movie. And that was just kind of where that ended. Mostly these two women, because even the real Penny Lane Trumbull, I couldn't really find anything about how she feels about the portrayal other than that, like, thank you to Cameron Crowe. And also that she like has a farm up north and she like has a winery. So that's where she is now. That era, so many things happened simultaneously. And, you know, one person's experience was not the exact same. It's not to invalidate one or the other, but just to say that everyone's story was a little bit different. Totally. And that's a really good example of, you know, two people going through the same kind of things and they both kind of have completely different opinions about them. Yeah. You know, you always want to have both of those sides. That way you can kind of see how it is from both perspectives. And getting the information too from various, then you can make up your own mind. It's not to say, I think one of the arguments was that, oh, because it was written by a man that it's, it's from the man's point yeah, of view. Yeah, that was definitely something she said. I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it was just Crow's experience and being at the age that he was. And it wasn't, oh, like treating women terribly or, or using women as, as objects, which happened, but that was just sort of the era of, of what yeah, was happening. Yeah. And she does, when you're going back about how she mentioned that it's through the eyes of a man or through a male gaze or something. It, she also mentions, or it is also mentioned almost famous is kind of tame in the way that it portrays drug use and sex with rock stars and all this stuff. But the reason it is so tame is because it's through the eyes of a 15 year old that like hasn't lost his virginity yet. So you kind of have these like rose colored glasses of like a kid, which I'm even surprised because I feel like nobody would care that you're 15 at that time, especially if you're a guy. When we get back to the movie, we meet Penny Lane. We meet Sapphire, who's played by Faruja Bach, who comes in a little bit later. And then we meet Palexia Aphrodite, who's played by Anna Paquin. We meet all these girls. They're trying to get in with Sabbath. Um, Penny's coat is probably the thing that people remember the most about Penny Lane is just that coat that she always has on, even though it's like San Diego. And it's, well, I guess it does get a little chilly, but. Which Cameron Crowe still owns. Want it. So the coat a video. is based on the coat from The Apartment, which is Cameron Crowe's favorite movie. And that's why Penny Lane has that coat. And that coat is made from scratch. So it's not like they got it off of a rack somewhere. It's not like I could get it off of a rack somewhere. And if you notice Penny also throughout the movie, this was something that I always noticed, but I guess I didn't really look into until I was researching for the pod. Is she always has, I always thought it was a caboodle with her of stuff, but it's not a caboodle. It's a tackle box, like a fishing tackle box. For makeup, right? For makeup and, you know, whatever else you needed. And I guess that was a thing that girls did because caboodles weren't invented yet. And this is why caboodles were invented is the company that makes caboodles saw Vanna White in the seventies with a tackle box with all of her crap in it. And that's how caboodles were born. And that's that's why we have caboodles. That's incredible. Yeah. Also Vanna White in the seventies. That's when she started. She's been on wheel of fortune forever. I thought it was more. Yeah. Well, I guess it It had to have been the seventies because caboodles started in the eighties. That's amazing. Can we go back and talk about Faruja Box line? 
Oh. Does anyone remember laughter? So when she auditioned, she had to say that line for her audition. And she was in like New York or something, some major city. But she sent a video or not a video, sorry, a tape recording of her saying that in different spots around the city, like 300 times at least to Cameron Crowe. And that was her audition. And that that was. That was <laughs> What's her greatest role? What's Bruges greatest role? The craft. No, I don't know. Return to Oz. I was, oh. You know what? I was going to say return to Oz because a while ago, like a friend of a friend. We met and he was like, I didn't know you were in Return to Oz. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said that Faroujah Bak looks like me as a kid in Return to Oz. Yeah, a little bit. And I was like, I guess. That's to me. her. I mean, the craft's the craft. But I, I think Water Boy. Oz. Yeah. She <laughs> was in uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau with Brando. Yeah. Oh, that's um, right. She's been in a lot of great stuff. Really underrated actress. Totally. For sure. She yeah. should be in way more things. She should. Still water. That was pretty good. Cameron Crowe essentially wanted Stillwater to be a real band. So much so that they did test pressings of their albums. They actually did covers. Uh, the first album, they're self-titled. Actually, it wasn't self-titled. It was called To Begin With, dot, dot, dot. Get it? Oh. Get it? The song titles for that first album were Hour of Need, Under the Table, If You Say Nothing, Chance Upon You, In a Fix, Loves Comes and Goes, Flat on My Back, Deep in the Flower, Something in Between, and Charlie's Blues. So that was at their first album. Second album was self-titled, and this is a more moody Stillwater because the cover is them in black and white. And I believe the cover is like a frame of them with like purple border and it's just a Stillwater. So, you know, they have become mood, moodier, more matured. matured song titles for their second album were Lorelei Lost, Rain, Figure of Speech, Less Is More. And you can even tell what the titles of these songs taste like chicken. That's the funny one. Little by little, you said it and rock me. Which brings us to 1973, which I had never even thought of, but this is their third album that they're on. This is their their third tour. Their third album is called what? Do you know? No. Farrington Road. Oh, wow. Because you never. have to have some kind of road. I love the cover because it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, the Mor Morrison Hotel cover, The Doors, where it's looking from the inside of a diner on the outside and the table is empty. And then you open or no, you turn the album on the backside and then you see all the food. So oh, it's like, oh, the food's gone, cool. but then it's there. The third album's track listing doesn't, I don't have all the track listings. All it says is that it opens with Fever Dog and that was it. Fever Dog is cashmere, right? Basically. And then the, oh shoot. I don't know the name of the other one they play. That's Bad Company. That's it's basically Bad Company. Oh yeah, yeah. We talked about the writers of the songs were Nancy Wilson and uh, Cameron Crowe, who were married, are not married anymore. I felt like a, a dumbass because I didn't know they were married. I didn't know they were married either. I just knew Nancy Wilson, obviously from heart, and she did the amazing soundtrack to Elizabethtown. But now that I know that they're married, I was like, wow, everything makes or I guess they were married. They were married in 1986. And that's they were already beginning to write songs for what ended up being Stillwater. And they were divorced in 2010. Not sure what happened, but Sad. it's a bummer because they seem like a great couple. And yeah. 
I think they complemented each other really well. And then Nancy Wilson went on to write scores for films and was a great, is, is a great songwriter who was Stillwater's technical consultant. Was it Eric Clapton? No. Do you feel like... Oh, Peter Frampton, the yes. other one. He's in the, the movie. Yep, he's in the movie. Peter Frampton was the technical consultant and he actually co-wrote some of uh, Stillwater songs with Nancy and, and Cameron Grow. He taught Billy Crudup. Did I say it right? That's what it was. I got confused because I knew it was Peter Frampton, but I was like, it was Eric. Eric Clampton would never do that. No, he's, he's too snotty. Yeah. Frampton essentially was his like guitar tech. That's dope. Crow did the liner notes to Frampton Comes Alive. So Cameron Crow had met Peter Frampton when he was Peter Frampton. And Peter Frampton's manager basically said, hey, there's this kid, Cameron Crow, who's a writer for Rolling Stone. If he really likes your album, he's going to write the liner notes, which ended up being Frampton Comes Alive. And, you know, the rest is history. The two actors and two players that formed Stillwater went to rock school. So when you were talking about the title, the title of the what could have been almost famous, uh, they did it in a studio in Santa Monica where they rehearsed for two months. It blew Kate Hudson's mind that Billy Crudup went from like no guitar to like rock star within a two month period. When they finally wrapped uh, rock school and were ready to start uh, principal photography on the film, they had a party at that studio. Nancy Wilson ran the lights. Peter Frampton was all the guitar techs. And Stillwater became reality. That they like went so to town. Rad. The the cast was going nuts. Like Cameron Crowe was going nuts. And they could not believe that within a two-month period they were able to make Jason Lee and Billy Crudup into that's crazy. Bona fide rock stars. Inside Arena, San Diego Sports Arena, which is the actual San Diego Sports Arena, which they retrofitted back to 1970s. And the music track is Yes is Roundabout. This is the introduction to William into the, the rock world and getting backstage. And all I can really, every time I see that scene, all I can think about is my first rock show or my first kind of concert and what it would be like to just go backstage. Even now would be insane. Like I can't even, what was your first rock show? Just show or just rock show? Rock show. Like rock, rock, show. rock we're talking about rock bands. So rock show. I would say Foo Fighters. The Universal Amphitheater in 2002. That doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't exist. Um, my Foo Fighters, San Diego, the one with the Weezer. The Cox Arena. Yeah. Is that the one the with Weezer? Weezer tour? Yeah, that was my first rock show. That was a long time ago. Sure was. And it also made me miss going to shows. Oh God, I can't even think about that right now. Those are the, the thoughts of when he's going backstage and he sees Red Dog and he's talking to all the roadies and all that. It just reminds me of that first time when you go to shows and, you know, especially being in the pit and you see like security and then you see them setting up the guitar amps and like the roadies. And like, it's just like, ah, just like if you've been to a rock show, it just makes you want to go back there. Yeah. Cameron Crowe does a really good job at capturing that atmosphere. So we talked about how Cameron Crowe always had a, a recorder, a tape recorder with him, which as a kid, I also had, a tape recorder that had a mic, an external microphone, but mine was square. And that's how you documented things. Like you would do memos or like I would record songs from the radio station and that's how I would like play them back or I'd pretend to be a DJ and just be like, do my own radio station. And Yeah, I recorded my friends. I had a little handheld, like a little gold with the tiny tapes. Yeah. And that's what I would do. 
That was the iPads in the in your phones of the day. That's how you recorded stuff. Thoughts about rock and roll saving the world and the chicks are great. That whole scene where Jason Lee is just kind of going on and on and on and on. And he grabs the shaving cream and like puts it in his hair. We need to try that. But what do you think about rock saving the world? Has rock saved the world? No, I don't think so. I don't think it ever will save the world, but it's the journey of saving the world that matters. Cause then once you get there, what are you going to do? Like, well, some people say rock is already dead. I don't think so. I feel like if you've ever been to a really good rock show, at least within the last two years, cause I can't say this year because nobody's doing anything. I feel like if you're at the right rock show with the right crowd, then you know that rock's definitely still alive. Well, and it's in those moments where it does feel like it is saving the world. Yeah. Like when you're at a show totally. and you're seeing your favorite band and you're singing along and losing your mind. In that respect, I think it does save the world because it allows you to have that glimpse of like nothing else in the world matters. Everyone just being united for yeah, two hours. Exactly. Yeah, no matter totally. what your political beliefs are, or spirituality, whatever you believe in, it unites us at least for, you know, two hour and a half show. Yeah. So in that true. respect, I think it does. There is footage of the San Diego show of Peter Frampton warming up the extras. Oh, that right before Stillwater so comes cool. out. And Jason Lee mentioned that they're rolling cameras. I think they're rolling about four or five cameras. And uh, Noah Taylor, I believe, is the actor who does the... The manager? I'm going to get to it later, but I love that actor. I love him too. He is great in every role that he's in. Life Aquatic. uh, Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's Um, right. Noah Taylor, like Faroujia Bach, should be in, in a lot more movies. And so Jason Lee, when Noah Taylor says still water, his switch came on. And even from the rehearsals when they were doing rock school, he turned it up a notch. And that's when he started doing the mic thing that he does in the movie where he picks up. Kate Hudson is like, he never did that during rehearsals. And so he turned into a real front man that that night when they shot it. It would be hard not to. Like you've been doing this for two months. You have an entire crowd. Like the audio track that they're singing along to the playback was originally recorded by Nancy Wilson. Okay. They didn't find the real voice of Stillwater till after the movie was okay. even wrapped. Oh, wow. So they re-recorded it with a, a guy's voice, but it was, Cameron Crowe says that it was Nancy Wilson's man voice <laughs> that Jason Lee was, was singing That's to. pretty funny. Stillwater kills the performance. You know, it cements William's obsession with, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be on the side stage. To one of my favorite bands documenting this and clearly falling in love with with a penny lane and that takes us to what i call cringy part number one which is the scene where william and penny are doing the whole well how old are you and then they drop the the age gets lower and lower and lower and and then william finally says or william hits 16 and, and then she says isn't it funny how the truth just sounds different he's like i'm 15 yeah it's cringy because there's the question of how old was Penny Lane? Was she a minor? I think she was. I think she totally was. Obviously them too, it's fine. But yeah. when you bring in Russell and what she had been doing with, you know, other rock bands, that's where it gets sketchy. To omit that would be wrong, I think. Right, totally. Because it happened. We're not saying that it's okay by any means. Like we're no. not saying like, yay, go date minors or anything <laughs> like that. And we're not saying that what Russell and, and the band was doing was okay at all. 
But to say that it didn't happen, I think would be a worse thing. Definitely. And you have little moments like that sprinkles throughout the movie where, yeah, like you were saying, you're like, "Uh, I don't know about that. But then also it was happening. So to pretend like it wasn't, it's just, yeah. William and Penny after the show. So this is Cameron Crowe's favorite moment. This is where they're saying their goodbyes and Penny's saying, I want to go to Morocco. Do you want to come with me? And there's that line where William Patrick says, ask me again. That was completely improvised. That was not part of the script. And that's the reason why it's Cameron Crowe's favorite scene because he finally saw Patrick come into his own and sort of be William and feel comfortable in, in, in his shoes so much so to try to improvise and really be in that moment, be in that scene with Penny. And it was very natural and just very Cameron Crowe like moment. And it works so well too. Yeah. And you can see in Patrick's eyes and I'm going to say Patrick, cause I know it's, I know it's him when he says, ask me again. And then she asks him and he says, yes. Like he's just like completely in love with Kate Hudson. At Absolutely. This point. And that really works and it really makes the scene. So you have Penny and William driving from San Diego to, to LA And there's that line where she talks about, you know, if you're ever lonely, you go to the record store and visit your friends, friends, which are the records themselves. And so you get to the Continental Hide House and enter Jay Burchill, who plays the crazy Led Zeppelin fan, which is based on a real, I believe it was the the Who fan, Vic Munoz. Yes. And hardcore Led, Led Zeppelin fan. He's like, Led Zeppelin touched this marker and, you know, you could see his shirt covered with autographs. That's where the relationship gets rekindled between Russell and Penny. And Anna Paquin has that line where, well, a few lines where she's telling William about how in act one, she pretends that he's not there. And then yeah. act two, then he pretends that she's not there. And there's this cat and mouse thing. And the last line is like, you were her excuse for coming here. And that's where I think William the jealousy starts rearing its ugly head and thinking that it's only really her and Penny or him and Penny, but now Russell's sort of back, back in the picture in real life. Crow would hang out there at the lobby at the right house by the phones, waiting to hear Clapton and Jeff Beck and Bowie when they would show up so he could get his interviews. And so basically he was right on the phone. They restored that hide house to back to where it looked, uh, how it looked in the seventies. When they got to the Hyatt house as it was back in, in 99, when they shot it, Crow was like, this place used to be bigger. Like it just, it feels a lot smaller. And so the production designer got the blueprints and even Crow said, you know, there used to be this big staircase. They looked up the original floor plans and discovered that there was a big staircase in the corner of the lobby where they had put up a wall. And so the production team convinced the owner to tear down the wall and lo and behold, they tear down the wall and there's the staircase. There was a staircase still there? An original marble terrazzo staircase. Oh, wow. Which you see in the movie. Yeah. Sadly, in now times, the hotel is not there. Well, it's still there, but it's all bougied and and modernized to restore it back to how it was in the 70s. It, it made everyone on the crew just super happy and especially uh, Cameron Crowe. A little history about Rolling Stone magazine and Ben Fong Torres. So for the kids, Rolling Stone, I don't know if Rolling Stone magazine is a big deal or not anymore. I know when I was growing up, it still was. 
And especially back in the 60s and 70s, it was like the first magazine of its kind to cover rock and roll. Originally, it used to be a supplement in the San Francisco newspaper. Rolling Stone magazine started in San Francisco. And it was more of like culture and it wasn't strictly music. And then over the years, it turned into a big rock and roll magazine and then eventually all genres of music. But it was a big deal not only to be covered in Rolling Stone, but to be on the cover. And so when William gets that phone call, that was his end goal to write for Rolling Stone magazine. And he gets it from Ben Fong Torres. It's a huge deal. That's like getting the call today to be a New York Times writer or or to be a writer for a big newspaper or publication. Ben Fong Torres, a little history about him. He grew up in San Francisco, actually in Oakland in Chinatown. He went to San Francisco State and he majored in radio, TV and film. And he was around, he graduated around the same time that a Rolling Stone magazine started, which is in 1967. Guess what the first cover of Rolling Stone was? Did you say 67? Yes. I don't know. John Lennon. Damn it. Oh my God. I was going to say that. Really? Fuck. Yeah. I was going to say, well, because I was thinking 67 and I was like, okay, not the Beatles too late, but John Lennon. And I was legit swear I was going to say John Lennon. I, I was believe say you. It. Okay, cool. But yeah, it was John Lennon and I believe he was in a movie. It was like a war movie. And so the cover looked more like a newspaper at the time. And it's him in like a war garb and and all that. Ben Fong Torres actually started to become a writer at the eighth episode or the eighth episode, the eighth issue of Rolling Stone magazine and went up the ranks and ended up being an editor in 1969. He interviewed the likes of Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, Ray Charles, Paul McCartney, Elton John, you know, think of a name in that time. And he and Ben Fong Torres interviewed him. So he was one of the head guys of Rolling Stone. Getting the phone call from Ben Fong Torres was a big deal for William at the time. Getting the phone call would be like getting, again, the phone call from the editor of the New York Times say like, yeah, become a staff writer. So yeah, he gets the article and I think it's 3000 words at $700. But then he raises it to 1000 But then because he says nothing, he raises it to 1000 Crazy. And crazy. Crazy. And he's, they pay for like room and board, right? They're like, we'll get you on the yeah, bus with the, the band. Don't let the band Don't let them pay anything. for anything. Yeah, like we'll pay for everything. Sounds like a dream. And then, hello, Rain Wilson. Yeah. Who's <laughs> just making faces in the back the whole time. Like, yeah. Does he ever say anything in the movie? Yeah, he does. In uh, towards the end? Towards the end. Yeah. I love the the way that the office is set up. There's a record of Mike Nichols and Elaine May right behind Ben mm-hmm. Fong Torres, the actor who's playing Ben Fong Torres. It's a shout out to Mike Nichols, who in his heyday was a singer, comedian. Well, Nichols and May were of, like a comedic duo, yeah, right? Yeah, they were a comedic duo, kind of vaudevillian actors. And then obviously Mike Nichols went on to direct, you know, some huge movies. Lester and William Part 2. In Lester's apartment, you can see a poster of John Coltrane. You can sort of see too where his music allyship is. He was a, Lester Bangs was a big jazz fan, a big Coltrane fan. Again, favorite lines, you've got starry eyes, my friend. Don't let those swill merchants rewrite you. Swill merchants. Yeah. Also his apartment's disgusting. Is it? 
Yeah, there's like chicken wrappers everywhere. There's like dishes in the sink. But isn't that like the dream of you're surrounded by your favorite music, you're at home with your favorite And your house is a mess? No. Just for like a day and then you clean it up. It didn't look like a day. Here comes a deleted scene, the stairway scene. So this is not in the theatrical cut, obviously, or the, uh, the bootleg version. The reason why is because originally this scene had the full length stairway to heaven. Yeah. So the scene was 11 minutes long, eight of them, eight and change being just stairway to heaven playing. It's a scene where William is telling his mom that he wants to go on tour and basically cover Stillwater and then Francis McDormand. It's very short in the final version where she says, you can't be gone uh, for more than missing one test. She has like four days. It been not miss one test and that you're a call and no drugs. The stairway scene is much more elaborate. It's where one of his teachers, the counselor, which is played by Cameron Crowe's mom, and then Anita's boyfriend is there for moral for support. For whatever reason. Moral support. Because I think at this point they're broken up already. And basically the teacher's on William's side and basically convincing William's mom, it's going to be a great thing. You know, there's positivity and rock writing and it'll really benefit William. And then the counselor is there just to reinforce that very statement. And so kind of like what Anita does with Simon and Garfunkel, William says this song, Led Zeppelin song refers to Tolkien. Right. So something that his mom can hold on to. And we got to listen to the whole damn thing, which ballsy of Cameron Crowe to even be like, this might happen. This might be included in my movie. Not just like five seconds of Stairway. No, we're talking the entire entire thing. And so they put the record. And what's cool is that in the deleted scene, it actually tells you when to hit play so you can sync it up with your own version. And it lines up perfectly i haven't i didn't try it you didn't try it i have not oh, tried it Oh man it's so good i'll get my vinyl out and i'll try it tomorrow especially when the very beginning when there's no vocals yeah it's all instrumental yeah. and Francis mcdonald is like so when does and then right that's oh, when jimmy that's er, cool. when um robert plant, robert plant <laughs> comes in anita's boyfriend starts rocking out you could see francis mcdormand yeah. start to lose it like just laughing at yeah. him yeah william joins into the fun as well he starts rocking out and then even like cameron crow's mom the counselor starts rocking out and it's a really i mean that would be a scene that i think i would shelve the million dollars to probably more million because that's also back in the day when zeppelin did not give rights to their music at all and the reason anything the reason they gave for for not letting him use stairway other than like it's the whole entire song was that they were like stairway is its own thing now like it's living on its own it can't be attached to anything else but they had let Cameron Crowe use a bit of cashmere for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was like the one thing. So I think that's what kind of made it a little bit easier for Cameron Crowe to be like, you know what? I'm going to put in five Led Zeppelin songs or maybe ask them for five songs. Because they ended up using three. Yeah, I think three. And then there's a fourth one in the theatrical cut that's not in the untitled. And I'm sure the relationship that Cameron Crowe with Rolling Stone. Hey, yeah. do you remember me? Totally. That all helped yeah. the process because that was one thing that I always wondered is like, how was he able to pull off getting like, not just one, but like three to four Zeppelin songs yeah. in, in a single movie. Frances McDormand is a huge rock fan. So for her to play someone that had reservations about rock and roll music was really tough. 
And so in those scenes, she's really holding back. She's a bit, such a big rock fan that during shooting Cameron Crowe before a scene would play a random rock song from the seventies. And one day Crowe picked Iron Man and Frances McDormand started playing air guitar, started going nuts. <laughs> I could totally like see that jumping happening. on sofas and like yeah. uh, playing air guitar and all that inside the tour bus, Doris. So in the scene, you can see the camera within the bus is kind of going back and forth through the bus. Like it goes towards the front of the bus. It goes to the side of the bus. You kind of see what everyone is doing up and down the bus. And for that, they built a dolly track on top of the bus so that the camera could just kind of go back and forth on the track. And you can kind of see it in like one of the scenes where William gets up. It's like red, a red strip on top of the bus. And you can see like the little rails. Yeah, because it's just tracking down the middle of, yeah. the, of the bus. Did you notice that Dick is reading Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man? I did. It made me think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of the trailer that plays in the movie when they're like in the car, I think is what it's playing. That's just the first thing I thought of. Well, because before when I had watched it, I hadn't really noticed what he was reading. And then when I was doing research, I saw that it was a Ray Bradbury novel. And then I saw it and I was like, oh my God, it's the Illustrated Man. The Illustrated Man. Yeah. This is, I I think, the beginning of where you can see the jealousy. I mean, maybe it was always there, but where you could see the jealousy between Jeff and Russell. Because there's a moment where William goes up to Russell when he's trying to get the interview that he's been trying to get forever. There's a shot of Jeff in the background where he's kind of like looking at them like, what is he up to? And why is he only paying attention to Russell? Why doesn't he interview me? And so to me, that's sort of the beginning of, of the jealousy between Jeff and Russell. They're heading to Tempe, Arizona, King of the Road Motor Lodge. Uh, William tries to get Russell for the interview. How many times total in the movie does he try? Uh, I'm going to say six. I counted five, but I could be wrong. Okay. But I would say... Would you count, okay, would you count when they're in the dressing room in San Diego and Jeff is talking about the chicks are great and he like turns to Russell and like. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything and then he turns back. I didn't count that one because he didn't formally ask him. Yeah. To me, it's more of when he goes up to him and he rejects him. Yeah. And he keeps going, hey, we'll do the interview when we get to Tempe and when we get to Cleveland. Yeah. Because I think that first meeting, it's sort of William is just trying to like gather himself and it it isn't really like an appointment. That scene where it's Russell and Jeff and this is where they start questioning, you know, the enemy, uh, William. And he says, you know, Rolling, let's not forget Rolling Stone trash Layla broke up cream, ripped every album Zeppelin ever made, which is all 100% accurate. That's where I think in that era, the rock critic, just like a film critic, was king. They could make or break your band. Where now, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't I mean, matter. Everyone's a critic now. Everyone's a critic. I mean, look at where you're listening to. But look at me. That's where their sort of hesitation comes from is that, you know, this little kid, you know, essentially rapping Rolling Stone that has wrecked other bands and other albums and the trust issues that, that start to build between William and and the rest of the band. This concludes part one of our discussion on the film Almost Famous. Part two will be coming next week. We really appreciate and thank you for listening. If you want to get a hold of us and recommend movies for us to discuss, you can reach us at cutmoviepod at gmail.com. 
Same thing on Instagram and Twitter at CupMoviePod. You can also find us on YouTube by searching CupMoviePod. There you can find a video podcast of this episode. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you guys on the next one. Cut. That's a wrap.